Well, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you know that we are in a series called The Summer in the Miners, and we're going through the Minor Prophets. And we are halfway through. Does anybody want to applaud that? I know I want to applaud that. Because I want to be honest and tell you something. This has been the toughest thing I've ever done preaching-wise. Uh, I think there's a reason why not many preachers preach on the minor prophets, because it's tough. It's hard stuff. But I want to thank you guys uh, for diving into it with us and for taking us up on our challenge. Remember, our challenge each week is that you would read that week's minor prophet. Uh, you can read them pretty shortly. Some of them are only a page. Some of them will take you maybe 15 minutes at the most. And if you remember, we're calling them the minor prophets, and they're called the minor prophets, not because they're less important. Uh, we made a joke in the beginning of the series that this is the part of your Bible where the pages are stuck together because we don't spend a lot of time in them, but it's not because they're not important. It's simply they're called the minor prophets because they're shorter. And so it gives us an opportunity to just do a flyover every week of these stories that many of them, we've never looked at these books before. And I've continued to hear from many of you of how this study has been uh, transformational for you. And how you've seen parts of scripture and characteristics of God that you've never seen before. And that, to me, makes it worth it. Because I'll be honest, about uh, two weeks ago, I thought, what am I doing? This is really tough stuff. Uh, it's hard to prepare for them. And it's, I've never taught a whole book all just all at once like that. But I appreciate you guys uh, hanging with us. And I know from what I've heard that God is doing some great things. And it has nothing to do with me, but because of the power of his word. And hit, uh, we were able to get to know Jesus better. If you remember, our, we're studying these minor prophets because you'll see up here on the screen. The minor prophets help us to see the characteristics of God and also to see who we are. So the minor prophets help us to see a clearer picture of who God is and who each of us are. We see those as these stories unfold each week. And this week, we're in the book of Micah. Book of Micah. So if you want to open up your Bibles and find that, uh, there's no shame if you have no idea where that is. That's what the table of contents is for at the front of your Bible. You can look it up. It's right after Jonah, which is also a hard one to find. But over the next minute or so, why don't you open up to the book of Micah? And as we've been doing each week, I'm going to give you kind of a 50,000-foot view of the book to help you as you go through it this week. And I want to remind you, inside your bulletin is a study guide. This is a great opportunity for you to go deeper, for you to make more sense of what we're, what we're reading, and for God to be able to speak to you uh, the words that he wants you to hear. And so I encourage you to look at that. But to start our flyover time here, the book of Micah was written between 735 and 710 BC, and that puts it around the same time as our first minor prophet we looked at, Hosea. He's also a contemporary of Isaiah. And as we've seen each week, um, these prophets all have a name that carries with it a meaning that almost always helps us to better understand the message that God has, that he's speaking through the prophet. Remember, the prophets that we're looking at here, they're not just people who are telling the future. That's really only a, a little part of what the prophets are doing. What they're doing is speaking on behalf of God to the people in this time period, but also for us today. And the name Micah, once again, carries with it a meaning. And Micah means, who is like God? It's a question. Who is like God? And we're going to see how Micah's name really helps to form the whole understanding of this book. We're going to see who is like God. We're going to see some of the characteristics of God. Now, Micah's divided into three sections. 
And just once again to give you this flyover, if you're taking notes real quick, the first section is chapter 1, verse 2. The second starts in chapter 3, and the third in chapter 6. And these are three woes or three judgments that Micah the prophet is saying to both the people of Judah and the people of Israel. And you can see each of those sections by the heading that says usually, listen, or your translation might say, hear. And most of the other prophets have shared their declarations of doom and gloom, and then, usually at the end, we get the hope. That's what we've been holding out for each week is, okay, these terrible things that are going to happen because of the sin of God's people, but there's hope. But Micah does things a little differently. Micah takes each of these sections and delivers the judgment, but then he immediately delivers hope. After each section, you're going to see judgment and hope. And that's really the theme of the book of Micah. The theme of the book of Micah is judgment and hope. So let's start reading in Micah chapter 1 this morning. The Lord gave this message to Micah of Moresheth during the years of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah when they were kings of Judah. The visions he saw concerning both Samaria and Jerusalem. So Micah is preaching to both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And Samaria and Jerusalem are the capitals of those. He says, Grief over Samaria and Jerusalem. Attention, let all the people of the world listen. Let the earth and everything in it hear. The sovereign Lord is making accusations against you. The Lord speaks from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming. He leaves his throne in heaven and tramples the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath his feet and flow into the valleys like wax in a fire, like water pouring down a hill. Why is this happening? Why are these terrible things happening? Because of the rebellion of Israel. Yes, the sins of the whole nation. Who is to blame for Israel's rebellion? Samaria, its capital city. Where is the center of idolatry in Judah? In Jerusalem, its capital. And so we see the indictments against both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And once again, as a common theme we've seen throughout these minor prophets so far, it's idolatry, putting other things before God. And if you go through, uh, you're going to see in the next couple verses in there, a list of some cities. We're not going to go all through those, uh, but each of these cities has a judgment against it, starting in verse 10. And in each of these cities, the judgment against it is kind of a play on words with the name of the city. And your Bible probably has a little asterisk in it, and down at the bottom, it'll tell you what those names mean, so you can look at that this week. But we see the first judgment against the people of Israel and of Judah, and that's exploitation and idolatry. They're taking advantage of the poor. Micah chapter 2 verse 1 says, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. The people were blinded by greed. Their idolatry, their lust for more, of putting other things before God, had worked itself out in their lives that now they were taking advantage of others to get more. Wealthy landowners were taking advantage of others. And we're going to see as we follow along here that the people, they don't want to hear this prophecy. And who can blame them, right? Who wants to hear these judgments against them? Here's what they say in verse 
6 of chapter 2. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. They don't want to admit what's really going on. They don't want to hear these bad things that are going on in their life. Like us, we only want to hear the good often. We want to shield ourselves from the bad. Instead, they only want to hear what they want to hear. Verse 11 says, If a liar and a deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the kind of prophet for these people. In other words, they want to hear what their itching ears want to hear. And if a prophet would come and say, hey, there's plenty of food and beer, that would be the kind of message they want to hear. Not this doom and gloom, not this judgment because of their sin. And this leads us to the second accusation against God's people. The problems with the leaders. The second accusation we see is problems with leaders. Micah chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. I said, listen, you leaders of Israel. You're supposed to know right from wrong. But you are the very ones who hate good and love evil. You skin my people alive and tear the flesh from their bones. Yes, you eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones. You chop them up for meat for the cooking pot. Then you beg the Lord for help in times of trouble. Do you really expect him to answer? After all the evil you have done, he won't even look at you. You might say, wait a minute. So they're cannibals? No, you've got to keep in mind, most of the minor prophets in all of Micah is poetry. Micah is prophesying the words of the Lord in, in ways that people, some imagery that can just prick at their hearts. What he's saying is, you're stripping these people alive. You're taking everything from them. You're treating them like food. You're taking advantage of the people. And we see that even the professional prophets, the religious leaders, they are crooked. Verse 4, this is what the Lord says. You false prophets are leading my people astray. You promise peace for those who give you food, but you declare war on those who refuse to feed you. You understand what it's saying here? That if you'll give me money, I'll tell you what you want to hear. How often do you think that happens today? I know we don't have TV preachers as much as we once did, but, but there's a whole generation of people who gave their money to hear someone, a professional prophet, a professional believer, a professional religious person, tell them what they wanted to hear. The prophets would say only good things if they were paid well. And because of their sin, of course, there is going to be a judgment. In verse 12, Because of you, Mount Zion will be plowed like an open field. Jerusalem will be reduced to ruins. A thicket will grow on the heights where the temple now stands. Now in chapter 6, we see the third accusation, that they cheat and they take advantage of other people. Because of the injustice and violence against each other, God is going to pronounce some judgments through Micah. And take note of this one in particular because we're going to come back and see a little bit of this later. 6, 14, and 15. It says, But you will eat and not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up but save nothing. 
Because what you save, I will give to the sword. You will plant, but not harvest. You will press olives, but not use the oil. You will crush grapes, but not drink the wine. You'll never be satisfied. This lust that you have for more, that you'll go to great lengths to take advantage of other people, to build for yourself, to consume, to be a consumeristic society, you'll never be satisfied, he says. Your greed will overtake you. But then we come to verse 3 of chapter 6. This is where I want us to really camp out. He says, my people, this is God talking, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. He's saying, what have I done? I've only been good to you. I've only taken care of you. Yet you have put other gods before me. You are living for yourselves, trampling those beneath you. The people had forgotten They had forgotten how great God was, that he was holy, that he was and is and is to come. Keep reading. It says, this is what the people respond. They say, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Can you, can you hear the sarcasm here? Saying, well, God, what can we possibly do? You just want more stuff. You want more burnt offerings. You want us to just give our firstborn? The response is filled with sarcasm. And there's a familiar theme that we see as we've journeyed through these minor prophets. We keep boiling down to the people of Israel and Judah want to follow God like a checklist. A checklist of rules. And he wants something different. He wants, if you remember, our hearts. We've seen that theme over and over. If you remember, each of these minor prophets are reminding the people of the covenant of God that he made with his people. And as we started the series, we looked at Hosea. And all throughout that book was an illustration of marriage. Now, for those of you who are married, is your marriage a contract or a covenant? I say, well, kind of both. Who wants to be in a marriage that's just a contract? You do for me, I'll do for you. God wants a covenant. He wants a relationship with us. He wants more than just checking things off a list. Because if our standing with God, our marriages, our marriage to God... Our acceptance into his kingdom is based on us keeping our end of that bargain, we're in trouble. We've seen that throughout the minor prophets. We can't do enough. We will continually, just like the people of Israel and Judah, mess up. But Micah always tells us there's hope. He goes on, this is what God wants. Micah chapter 6. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. 
Now, one of these words might have scared you for a moment there. What does the Lord require of you? God didn't want a transaction. This word require doesn't mean like it's your ticket to getting to heaven. Some of your translations might actually say desire. This is what the Lord desires. This is what God wants in this contractual or this covenantal relationship with him. He says justice. Your translation probably says to do justice. I like that. I like that better than act justly because act carries with this word, at least for me, a theater guy of pretending. And God doesn't want us to pretend. He wants us to do justice, to make things right. We saw this same theme in Amos. Micah laid out some of the terrible injustices going on with his people, taking advantage of the poor. The courts were taking advantage of people. You're going to see that as you read this week. They were stealing. They were lying. And we spent some time looking at this word justice a few months ago when we looked at the Beatitudes. But when we think of justice today, we often think purely in legal terms. You know, you hear this, gong gong, the criminal justice system. Anybody remember that show? Okay. Law and order, there you go. Or we think of justice as it applies to races, racial injustice and we should fight against racial injustices and stand up for the marginalized and help build into our systems to ensure proper justice in our courts but when we think of justice just in those terms i often think that we can then put it off on somebody else i mean after all most of us aren't in a position to fix the justice system but justice is so much more than that in God's eyes. Justice is making things right. Making things balanced, fair, equitable. To do justice is to order every area of your life as God would will it. Here's some examples of doing justice. Doing justice is supporting an overwhelmed single parent who's struggling. Struggling to try to help her children as she walks through that alone. Justice is taking care of foster kids. Justice is employing someone who's recently been out of prison. Justice is a host of so many things that level the playing field, providing equal opportunities for everyone. So let me ask you, in your areas of life, where can you do justice? Where do you see things that need to be made right? What's out of order in your world? We all have them. Things that we notice that just, we go, that's just not right. There's injustice there. And God says, you know what I want out of this relationship? I want you to do justice. So what are, look at these questions up here on the screen. What things need to be made right? I want you to think about that. What things need to be made right? And then the next question, what will you do about it? It's what it means to do justice. See, here was the problem that Micah's calling out. The people had gotten used to injustice. And we read about that in some of the previous chapters, and you'll see them this week. And we hear some of the things that the people of Israel and Judah were doing. We think, that's terrible. I would never do that. But think about this. Do you think God's people, the leaders, the prophets, even the priests just woke up one day and we're treating people so terribly. If you remember, it actually said in chapter 2, verse 1, we read this earlier, that they plan for it. 
This isn't something that just has happened accidentally. It was a slow erosion, and it probably started with something relatively minor, because here's a truth for us. We get used to injustice. Once we see it so many times, it no longer bothers us the way it once did. I mean, most of you guys know that we moved here a little short of a year ago, and a lot of you helped us move into our house. And with it came lots of stuff. And uh, I would love to say that our house is all set up and it's all put away, but the reality is it's not. And in our hallway, for a long time, we, we put a box and we said, okay, this is where we're going to put the things that we no longer need, the things we're going to donate, the things we're going to get rid of. And we said, well, the, the idea there was we'd put it there, we'd load it up, and then what would we do? We'd get rid of it. We'd take it out. But that's not the way it works in the Bruce house. We started putting things in there, and for a week or so, it went really well, and then another week went by, another week went by, and random things started to appear in that box that weren't supposed to be there, and uh, unfolded laundry, and things we're carrying in that we set down, and sooner or later, our whole hallway is blocked by this giant stack of stuff, and of course you would think, a smart person that I am, we would move it, Right? No, we just learned to move around it. <laughs> this pile of junk. And honestly, I think all of us just forgot about it. We got so used to seeing it in the hallway, moving around it, changing the way we were to get down the hallway just to make it through there, that we didn't do anything about it. And that's often the way that injustice is. We're just used to seeing the pile there for so long that it no longer even bothers us. Maybe there's something broken in your house. It's been broken for a long time. You keep saying, oh, I got to fix that, but sooner or later you just forget about it. You just work around it. Have we gotten used to injustice? Have we gotten used to seeing people hungry? Have we gotten used to people being treated differently because of the color of their skin? Have we got used to seeing people marginalized because of physical or mental handicaps? What is it that you see? God is calling you to do justice. Where do things need to be made right? Do justice. Next, God says to love mercy, or your translation might say to love kindness. And this is the word hasad. Mercy. There's no English word that totally captures this word. We spent a whole message on what it means to be people of mercy a few months ago, once again, when we looked at the Beatitudes. But this word, hasad, it can mean mercy or not giving someone what they deserve. And we aren't just to be merciful. What does he say we're supposed to do? We're supposed to love mercy. We're supposed to crave giving out mercy. Not just doing it because we have to, but to love mercy. Years and years ago, when I was in student ministry, I was driving my car. This is in Franklin, Indiana, when we lived in, Frank, in, in Indiana earlier, down this winding road, and I was on my way to a middle school Bible study. And I was late. And I was going real fast. And of course, as often happens, I heard behind me. And I thought, oh, great. So pulled over. The officer speaks to me. He says, uh, 
do you know why I pulled you over? I said, I'm pretty sure I was speeding. He said, yeah, you were very much speeding. He said, where are you going in such a hurry? I thought, yes. All right. Well, officer, I, I know this is going to sound crazy, but I'm late to a junior high Bible study that I'm running. And he looks at me and he goes, I can't give you a ticket. He showed me mercy, not giving me what I deserved. I deserved to get a speeding ticket because I had broken the law. But he gave me mercy. Now, I don't know if he loved giving me mercy, but he showed me mercy. So do justice. Love mercy. Mercy is getting down on your hands and knees and doing something to restore dignity to someone whose life has been broken by sin. Sinclair Ferguson said that. Brian Stevenson, in his book, Just Mercy, said, Mercy is most transformative when it is directed at the undeserving. When we don't deserve it, do we love to give mercy? God desires for us to be people who do justice, not just in the courts, but in everyday life. And he wants us to love doing mercy. Now, the first and second of these desires that God has for us really come out of the next one. Justice and mercy on their own, they're not enough. There's a third ingredient that God desires that binds them all together to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. He wants us to walk it. Realizing that it's not about what's in it for me but living out justice and mercy, walking alongside God. See, Micah told the people that they're full of themselves. They're not walking humbly with God. They aren't concerned with others, and they certainly aren't concerned about walking with the Lord because they have become gods unto themselves. James 4, 6 tells us, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. That's what God wants from us. This week at VBS, we had a theme verse. If you're with us, you know it was Psalm 25, 4. Make your ways known to me, Lord. Teach me your paths. I see some people doing the motions out there. That's right. Make your ways known to me, Lord. Teach me your paths. If you want to walk on the path with God, what are his ways? to do justice, to love mercy, to love kindness. Are you walking with God or are you walking your own way? Well, Michael was sent to remind the people that they needed to walk with God. Jesus spoke about what happens when we don't do this in Matthew 23. Matthew 23, 23 says, What sorrow awaits you teachers of the religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes. You should follow the rules. You should do the right things, but do not neglect the more important things. God doesn't just want us to follow a set of rules. We've seen that throughout the Minor Prophets. God doesn't desire the sacrifice. What does he desire? A contrite, a changed heart. The rules are good, but if we follow the rules without the relationship, we're missing 
walking with God. Now, Micah, like so many of the other minor prophets, are tough. It's a hard book to read because we, just like those people, would much prefer to only hear the good things about our lives. But each time Micah drops God's hammer, he offers hope. And the end of Micah is giving us what we need as we continue on this journey. This is going to fuel the rest of the minor prophets. Micah chapter 7, starting in verse 18. And Micah 7, 18 is probably one of the most amazing passages in all of the Old Testament, and especially in the minor prophets. In spite of all the injustice and the lack of mercy, let's read. Who is God, a God like you? Remember Micah's name? His name meant, who is like God? He says, who is a God like you? who pardons sins and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. He loves mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. See, in this passage, God lives out what he's asked of us to do justice, to love mercy, all of our sins hurled to the bottom of the sea. He doesn't hold our sins against us. He doesn't remind us of our sins. As I was studying this verse this past week or so, I learned about a Jewish custom that's still practiced today on the first day of Rosh Hashanah. And the Jewish people will head down to the banks of a water and they will take a piece of bread and toss it into the water as a symbol. It's a practice called teshlik, to remind themselves that God will toss their sins into the depths of the seas. I once heard of a Jewish ritual where everyone gathers by the shore and throws bread into the ocean. I never understood why they did that, but I found out. Each person tosses a piece of bread into the water. And as the pieces float off, the previous year's sins are washed away. An old woman's racist comments to the cleaning lady, a wife's infidelity, a father's drunken rage, a daughter's lie. Poisoning the sea like a 
like a pious oil spill. They call it Tashlich. Thank goodness the fish are safe. They believe that fish are immune to the evil eye, the source of bad deeds. Fish don't have eyelids, so they see the world purely. This way they eat the bread and digest the sins without absorbing evil. They can't take that risk. Not with this sin. What do you do if there is no water? You'd have to burn your sins. That's safer. There goes the worst of me and my best hat. We just read, Who is a God like you? who pardons sins and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us, and you will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. It's a beautiful ceremony, and there's nothing wrong with the symbolism but praise God that you and I don't have to return to the water every year to cast our sins. We don't have to worry about burning those sins that we can't let anyone see because the God of justice and mercy wiped them out with the blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. We've been looking for Jesus as we've been going through the minor prophets. And in Micah 5, 2, Micah prophesies that out of Bethlehem, out of this nobody place, will come a Savior. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathath, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are of old from ancient times. You'll see as you read on this week that Micah tells us that he will be our shepherd. He'll be our deliverer. Our God is a God of justice. He demands justice. And it's right that we should pay for our sins. 
but we can't toss enough bread into the ocean to cover them. So he shows us mercy. He loves to show us mercy. Our bread of life. The Holy Spirit flowing through the streams of living water. His sacrifice balances the scales of justice. Jesus lives out God's justice and then he shows us his mercy, his hasad, his loving kindness. Remembering our sins no more, tossing them to the bottom of the ocean. I want to end our time together by reading from Psalm 103. And I shared with you earlier one of the judgments against the people for their idolatry, for their lack of justice and mercy was they would never be satisfied, that they would want more and more. But our God of justice and our God of mercy has done this for us, Psalm 103. Let all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart I will praise his holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he does for me. He forgives all my sins. He heals all my diseases. He redeems me from death and crowns me with love and tender mercies. He fills my life with good things. My youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord gives righteousness and justice to all who are treated unfairly. He revealed his character to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love with Hassad. He will not constantly accuse us, nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all of our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heaven above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. He redeems us. He fills us with good things. We will be satisfied. We have to do justice to love mercy. And we can walk with the Lord, walk humbly with our God, who doesn't just show us justice and mercy, but he gives us his grace. The blood of Jesus covering our sins, Tashlik tossing them as far as the east is from the west. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for that amazing ending to the powerful book of Micah. That in the midst of all those judgments and all the, the ways that we, Lord, not just the people of Israel and Judah, but we have fallen short, that you show us your loving kindness, your tender mercy through your Son, that you made a wave to cover our sins, Lord, that we don't have to go and try to cast them into the ocean, but the blood of Jesus covers them. We thank you for the way you have supplied all of our needs. You have given us not what we deserve, but Lord, you have given us your grace. Lord, may we be people who do justice, look for it amongst the, the people that we go to school with and work with in our communities, in our nation, Lord. 
Can we help to be the people who make things right in your name? God, may we be people who love mercy, who chase after it, who want to give it out freely as you have given it to us. God, may we walk with you and you alone. Not to fill out a checklist, but Lord, because of Tashleek, because you have cast our sins as far as the east is from the west, because you have wiped them away, you remember them no more, and you supply all that we need. So God, we thank you for that truth. God, may we be people, a community in this church and in Seymour here who are doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly in your name. It's in your powerful name that we pray and all God's people said, amen.